0: Hello and welcome to your new life blend. I'm your host, Shoshana Hecht, and today I'm so excited to welcome journalist and author, podcast host, and entrepreneur, Elise Hugh. We're going to talk about Elise's upcoming book, Flawless, about the beauty industry and specifically the five years she spent as NPR's first ever bureau chief in Seoul, Korea, where the culture of beauty and perfectionism runs deep, and women on average spend two times the amount on beauty products and treatments than we do in the US. Here on Your New Life Blend, we look at what it means to live your life with intention, to be in touch with our goals and our needs, and to design our lives guided by that North Star. But we also look at the systems that we live within and how they work for us and particularly for women and for women of color, how they can work against us. So I'm especially interested in hearing from Elise today about the process of writing this book, where it took her, what she learned, and also about her childhood growing up in Texas, because I grew up in Texas and I'm super excited to have that talk too. Yeah. So, Elise, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. I'm delighted to do it. I'm so excited to talk about all the things with you. But first, wanted to ask you why this, Flawless, ended up being the book you chose to write because someone like you with such an amazing career in media, longtime NPR correspondent and bureau chief, in demand host across Blue Chip. Brands like TED, the co-founder of a podcast production company, and one of the founders of the beloved Texas Tribune. You could have picked any topic. So really interested in what it was about this topic and grabbed you and made you think of all things. This is the book, my first book. Yeah, in short, it was my
1: unfinished business. I spent nearly four years in Seoul, and during that time, I think I covered something like 27 missile provocations between North Korea and South Korea, and then also Japan, which is collaterally affected when North Korea threatens to strike or tests its missiles into the Sea of Japan. And every time that happened, I'd have to go on the air and report it for newscasts or for Morning Edition or All Things Considered. And there was so much focus on national security issues, on business, politics, and just the news of the day that something that I didn't focus or train my eyes on was actually in my daily life, which was this really pervasive beauty culture. And I describe beauty culture as kind of the appearance-focused cousin of diet culture that sells us on this notion that we are incomplete or that we could be upgraded and that you can buy things. To fix it. So it's really an important focus and something that is a tentpole of the modern woman's experience. And something that I was so confronted with daily in a culture where looks are really paramount. It is social currency. It is professional currency. South Korea is a place where headshots are often required on resumes. It's where passport photos are photoshopped by default. It's where spas are available for kids as young as five or six years old for mani-pedis. I remember when I had a three-year-old, I was asked if my three-year-old had eyelash extensions because it was expected and normalized that you would do this sort of beauty work. I never really looked at this in any sort of journalistic way in the first few years I was there because I was so busy doing everything else. And the span of time happens just as the Korean beauty industry quadrupled in the four years I was there. Yet I still didn't pay attention to it. There was a feminist reckoning towards the end of my time there in 2018, too busy covering Kim Jong-un. So when I came home, I really had this notion that, gosh, it nagged at me that my work wasn't done and that I had an opportunity from my unique vantage point of being a woman, an Asian woman in Seoul. I am Taiwanese American and not Korean American, but that also meant having to travel in spaces and be judged at first glance as an Asian woman and what that felt like, what it meant for me, how I had to make myself small, how I had to labor in some cases in order to fit in, how I came to really myself myself and scrutinize my pores or scrutinize my weight and body in ways that I hadn't before I felt like I should tie that all together with a lot of the political strands the economic strands the cultural strands that were going on and nobody had done that before so to sum up the TLDR answer to this question is I wrote this book because it didn't exist and I wanted it to
0: Pow. Amazing. It's so interesting what you've woven together there for me. I think your own experience personally and observationally, like with your family, your kids, and then professionally, just all the permeation. There.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that some of your listeners know this, but when you go to try and sell a book proposal, you try and like convince people why this is a book that needs to exist. You often also have to make the case why you are the only author to write this book, that I, Elise Hugh, should write it and not you, Shoshana Hecht. I happened to have three daughters by the time I came home, and I only had one when I went overseas. So two of my daughters were born there. I spent a lot of time in that very uniquely feminine state of being pregnant and then postpartum. So I was very conscious of my body. So that came into play as well. I also, you mentioned that I grew up in Texas. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and I worked as a teen model. And so even in my adolescence, when I was trying to figure out who I was, was being externally judged. And I kind of already wrestled with my demons about that by the time I was 20 years old. So before I was old enough to drink, I had already exercised that demon of, oh, my gosh, am I skinny enough? Am I pretty enough? Are my boobs big enough? I dealt with it. You know, I had my late 1990s eating disorder, which it seems like so many of us did. I was cured from it. I did the therapy. I was like, Okay, I've wrestled with this demon. I was hobbled and now I'm healed. So 12 years later, more than a decade later, I found myself overseas and then confronted with a place, just a sea of images and a sea of consumerism saying, do this and you'll look better. Fix this. Why don't you get rid of the freckles on your face? Why don't you do this wrap to slim down? All sorts of things. And I thought, gosh, this is really interesting. And it might be a harbinger of things to come because it's getting easier and easier to change the canvas, change our bodies and match them to the filters that we see digitally.
0: No doubt. So many triggers of that old stuff, like that slippery slope of I'm cured, but am yeah, <laughs> <laughs> The tractor being pull of diet culture and the beauty industry and who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to shop. Is yeah, yeah. Something.
1: I'm 41 now. And so I'm sure any of my peers in the same sort of elder millennial milieu or Xers might remember that Kate Moss quote about how nothing tastes as good as being skinny feels. And I remember so many of my friends had that cut out and posted on their fridge. And it's like, wait a second, there's tons of stuff that tastes better than being skinny feels what are you talking about but it was
0: so indoctrinated just relating I was in the whole diet culture machine and like every leader at any program that you went to and I did a lot trying to fit in and fit basically conventional beauty standards yeah cookie cutter mold and growing up in Texas and suburbs you know is a mood where in Houston were you memorial
1: Okay, yeah. I did a semester at U of H. I love Houston. If I were to move back to Texas, which I cannot because of the politics, but if I were to move back to Texas, Houston would be the city I would live in.
0: Thank you for saying that. Houston is the most I rep Houston, underrated city in the state in my opinion. Recording this actually from Galveston, which I also like a lot.
1: Houston Galveston, that whole Houston Galveston area, it is so diverse. It is by some measures more diverse than New York or Los Angeles if you look at equal distribution of white, Latino and black. And Asian, large Vietnamese population. It makes the food amazing. Amazing. The art and access to art and culture in Houston is fantastic. If you can spend a bunch of time on highways and you're okay
0: with that and okay with being near a bunch of petrochemical refineries. And you're cool with no zoning, which makes it not that pretty in some ways. Some parts of it are beautiful. Some parts of it look like Paris, though. Yes, exactly. I would just like riff on Houston for a little bit. But definitely a pressure, like the big hair, the certain look. Definitely. I know what you're talking about with the teen model. And I don't think it's unique to Texas necessarily. But I did grow up in the 80s, really soaking in and then into the 90s, like soaking in the system unfinished business. Was part of that also just being in the media?
1: You know what? I actually don't know that being a journalist is that much different than the experience of just contemporary life in which we are now used to being in front of screens all the time. I'm talking to you and having to look at myself at the same time. I only FaceTime with my relatives now. We never talk on the phone anymore. We are more barraged with visuals and imagery than we ever were before. And we see ourselves mediated through technology more than than ever. The idea of being on camera, which used to be unique (laughs) for most of human civilization, is now so normalized, right? Like little babies know how to pose for photos or immediately recognize that they are on screen in a way that developmentally humans didn't do before the advent of this technology. And so that is a huge strain of my reporting. And in Flawless, the book, I explore twin strands of technology that really converge in Korea in a big way. One is this overwhelming visuality that I'm talking about that begets self-monitoring and self-surveillance. Like, we know what we look like on camera, and so we perform for the camera. And then it creates this LARPing of our lives, live-action role-play <laughs> of our lives. It's like, how does it look to you instead of just how do I exist in my own skin? And then the other strand of tech that I explore is the technologies of self-improvement, which is faster, better, lighter, less invasive ways to change our appearance which South Korea also does really well, sometimes dramatically in order to smooth our skin or shave down our jaws. And so you have these twin things happening. They were all happening in a hypercharged way and very normalized six, seven years ago when I was in Korea. And my thesis was that a lot of the things that I was seeing and these twin strands of tech, tech of surveillance and self-surveillance and the tech of self-improvement were converging. And then the future had already arrived in Korea. It just wasn't evenly distributed. And that's what what we're actually seeing in the United States now. It's now normal to expect that people are going to do injectables in order to have creaseless foreheads. It's now normal to expect that there are subtle filters on us by default. TikTok comes with subtle filters of one to two percent without us opting into it. You can't even opt out of it, right? It automatically smooths. It just lightly, lightly slims down the jaw in ways that are kind of imperceptible, but also kind of train our eyes to expect eventually over time. This is already happening. And now I wish publishing periods went faster, right? Because the book talks about a lot of things that now seem like, oh, yeah, duh. But at the time when I was observing it, it was like, whoa, something really important is happening here. And what does that mean for us? Where do we draw the line? Yeah. And even Zoom has that little slider. It was showing your producer, Rachel, that you could do this. Touch up my appearance is what it's called. And then as you move the slider over to the far end, then you look like those catfishy photos. Like you have a soft filter on everything. The light is perfect and your skin is completely blemish free and wrinkle free. And, and no
0: redness Yeah, at and, all. And, and
1: your jaw is somehow skinnier. You could do it just a little bit, just a touch, right? And that's what's happening, which is fascinating.
0: And like you say, is totally expected and the norm. And so I hear you about publishing periods and wishing you could move faster because you've already named so much in the book that's just become... Um, De jour, right. This is what's happening in our lives. Can we even opt out? What are our moves? Yeah, we can
1: divest. We can divest from beauty culture. And that's why we're having this very conversation and why I have been forthcoming and talking about it. It's been hard for me. I know some of this podcast is self-reflective. And so if you would just indulge me in reflecting, it's actually hard for me to stake a claim or have a very pointed opinion on things. I'm very opinionated privately, but publicly, because I'm so trained as a journalist in the traditional journalism model of just being an observer and maybe providing analysis and context, but not saying like, this is wrong, we should call it out. Unless what is wrong tends to be a matter of freedom of information, let's say. That's a big one that journalists will always stand up for and take a very pointed position on. So in this case, I'm really taking a pointed position against factory-issued beauty standards. And it's been hard for me to just come out and really declare that. My issue isn't any specific standard. I'm not saying that having smooth skin or looking youthful in those standards of themselves are bad. I'm saying that standardization is bad. The notion that there is a standard at all is problematic because it marginalizes people who don't fit in. And the more narrow our standard of beauty gets, then the wider the pool of ugly becomes, or those that don't fit the beautiful standard becomes. What do we do? One thing that I think is really promising is neutrality. The notion that beauty and appearance aren't the same thing. We tend to conflate beautiful as something that appears beautiful externally, but beauty as applied to art, or beauty as applied to nature, or beauty as it meant for the Greeks and the Romans and other ancient civilizations was really spiritual. It was a spiritual concept. It was about virtue and not appearance. We have just now conflated beauty with morality these days. We've conflated beauty with appearance and appearance with morality. There's all this social psychology that shows that there's a halo effect for people considered attractive. If you are considered attractive externally, people also believe you're imbued with qualities like smarts or a diligence or creativity, whatever it is.
0: Worthiness. deserving. Right. Worthiness.
1: And so we really have to separate that. We need to talk about it. We need to sort of parent in a different way in which this is really made explicit. But one of the things that I'm wrestling with, and I'm wrestling with out loud in real time as I'm talking to you, is South Korea is a culture where the fact that appearance matters is embedded. And it is expected and it is acknowledged. There is a language to it. It's called lookism. It's an open discrimination, an open sort of discrimination against those who don't fit the appearance standard. It's acknowledged in the way that parenting happens. Mothers essentially say to their daughters, fix this, lose weight. Let me give you this gift certificate to get plastic surgery. And in the U.S., we want to say, oh, no, Photoshop is bad. We want to say you are beautiful just as you are. We want to say it's your insides that count. But there is a scene in my book. I do it myself. I'm constantly telling my three daughters who are now elementary aged that it's the content of your character that matters. It's kindness. It's how you treat other people. How do you feel about that in order to focus on their interior lives? And I think that's all important. But as I walked away from putting my two older girls down one night, they were nine and six at the time, I heard the younger one say to the older one, mama says it doesn't matter if you're pretty. It matters if you're clever and kind. And Ava, the third grader at the time, said she only says that because she's already pretty. All they had to do to recognize that the appearance standard matters and that we judge people externally, whether we want to or not, is just to be born and to be alive and to look around. And so I talked to a historian about this, and she said, when we continually feed the message that it's your inside that matter, it's the thought that counts, and you're beautiful no matter what, our children don't believe us. And they would be right, because it's actually a complicated form of gaslighting our kids to say, oh no, you're beautiful just as you are. Because they have to go out into the world and they have to see how people are treated. And so the big question that I wrestle with now is, okay, then what? If we are going to be good ancestors for future generations, how should we be teaching our kids about this? South Korea acknowledges that appearances matter. The United States implicitly acknowledges it, but wants to say it doesn't. But in both cases, it's problematic. So what would a more affirmative vision
0: look like? The question. Kids, man, they really drive it home the point that we're soaking in the messaging that counters every positive uplift, tiny little scrap that we can try to muscle together at home. But they're just walking around the world and getting all this programming that counters all of that that says, yeah.
1: Yeah. And you talked about, okay, so what is one response? I think one response is to counter shame. I think shame is like the center of a lot of this. I think it's really important that we actually tell our kids the truth
0: Amen, fist pumping, Co-signing all of it, because when we are in the shadows with whatever, with a feeling that we are a problem, the way our nose is, the way we look, our body, the shape of our body, the size of our body, it becomes a monster that just feeds itself and grows and festers. And the antidote to shame is
1: sunshine, of course, or as Brene Brown would talk about vulnerability to essentially say and put language around it and put your feeling around it, and your heart around it and say, this sucks for me. And when we do that, there is less shame. You know, the book doesn't come out until late May, but I'm already starting to talk about it a little bit. And when I do, I am finding that people also are sharing their stories and saying, yeah, this sucks for me too. And I think that's the beginning of being able to make change. I'd like to look at, as I continue to wrestle with these topics, the Black is Beautiful movement, essentially countering shame by collectivizing. And so how could we do that on a big scale? There are a lot of people who are already talking about beauty neutrality and a lot of beauty critics out there and a lot of diet culture critics out there. And so I feel like my addition to this conversation is only to essentially stand in solidarity, one, to amplify the voices of Korean women who are in the most extreme beauty culture in the world. But often this conversation is rooted around white middle class women. And so I think that it's also important to remember that these issues are global. They're intersectional, that trans- Trans women also stand together with this pressure. And I talked to several trans women in this book who are like, wait, not all trans women perform femininity. We also feel like we have to pass by looking a certain way in the same way as a cisgendered woman would. So shame is at the center of this. I haven't arrived at a specific framework for, hey, this is what we should do and this is the prescription. But talking about it and all of us engaging in these conversations is an important first step.
0: I completely agree. I love how you're like, I'm just starting to talk about it. Yay. Thank you for being here to do that. Because I think the more that you do talk about it and name this, the more it's going to unravel. There's a ripple effect. Yeah. And it's going to unravel some of that question and like what to do about it. What are some of the other responses? There's just so much fraught stuff here. We could talk for hours. For hours. For hours. Some of the things you've already mentioned about who the pressures are on and who gets to tell the story and who's uplifting. I think you mentioned that. What's the phrase you have for that? It's speaking nearby, right? Yeah, speaking nearby. Like, I
1: am not a Korean woman, but there's a concept that a documentarian talks about in terms of sociological work or journalism work, in this case, in which I don't speak for Korean women, and no one Korean woman would claim to speak for all Korean women either, but I can do my best to stand closely to the subject to spend a lot of time observing and then put into context what their experiences are, but really centering the women and their voices.
0: And using your position and your platform. And like what you bring to the table and the voice that you have to really uplift that is really powerful. We've talked about filters, but I do want to chat a little bit about A.I., Yeah, well, we're already seeing some of what AI can do in
1: terms of developing new filters. The it filter of the moment on TikTok is something called bold glamour. And it makes you have that sexy baby meets Jessica Rabbit look on your face automatically, but in a way that doesn't have lag, it doesn't separate. Some of the early filters were quite bad in which they looked like filters. But this one actually looks like you were perfectly made up And your hair's just gotten blown out and you've gotten a Restylane injection and Kardashian sister makeup just by flipping on the filter. And it's instant. And then when your mouth moves, the filter moves with you very naturally. MIT Tech Review actually looked into it and discovered that this very filter, which is so effective and is widely adopted in the last couple of weeks since it's been out. This filter was developed with AI, with machine learning. It feeds on a bunch of data that then teaches itself what is considered beautiful. And over time, as more and more data is fed into it, it helps the machine better understand that which works and is desirable. And so many of the folks who develop social algorithms have now said essentially that because the machine ends up learning from itself based on so much data that it is fed, that they don't exactly know why the algorithms spit out what they do when it comes to social or exactly know how these now chatbots arrive at the certain answers that they do. We know the way the technology works, but it's gotten to the point where content, like the production of content, could essentially be reduced to zero. The work of graphic designers, for example, that we might say, hey, put hair on this bald man. Now you can essentially just write a prompt to put hair on a bald man, and there's various types of hair. You can choose all these design possibilities, and it looks pretty good just by writing in the prompt. So all this manual labor that we used to do is now going away, and So I have concerns as somebody in media about content going to zero. The price per unit of content or the cost at which we can price ourselves for this kind of talent is going to zero or it's becoming more affordable, cheaper because machines are doing it. When it comes to filters in the bigger scheme, when we talk about our appearance, is that theoretically, technology can just keep improving. Like skin can only get smoother and smoother and more refined, or our noses can be more and more perfect according to some amalgam of like digital standards or global standards. And bodies can be more and more perfected. And so if we are chasing the digital standards, there is no way the human meat space body can ever reach an artificial digital standard. But that is kind of what we're doing because our avatars and our filters present us with blueprints of what we're supposed to look like. So we see the more perfected versions of ourselves, and then we want to perfect our canvas, the actual meat space, physical self to look like that. But one will always have an advantage over the other. And it's not the mortal thing. It's the synthetic. Like, if we are favoring the synthetic, the synthetic can continually improve. And then technologies of self-improvement have to continually improve to chase that synthetic blueprint. Where does that leave us? We could theoretically be chasing an ever-narrowing
0: standard with ever-increasing technological upgrades. It's like a punch in the gut, honestly. There's so many things going through my head at once. First of all, I feel a little nauseous. So good job. Oh, no. (laughs) No, I think in a good way, like you hit me where it counts and it's made an impact. It seems like the answer is opt out completely of all of it. And then I'm like, well, there's a paradox. Yeah. And this is why I I am very
1: seduced by beauty, like external beauty and beauty products and beauty services. So I just want to say that I know that beauty culture is entwined with capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy and all these things. However, it's also very human to like beautiful things, whatever we consider beautiful. It's also very human to find meaning and connection in touch. And so I love a head massage or the scalp massage before I get my hair cut. I enjoy the touch of beauty workers when I get a mani-pedi. It's also very human to have this sense of striving and hope that maybe we could look a little bit better than we do today. Or I would like to be somehow better tomorrow. And better might mean something external. At the heart of appearance is this paradox. Beauty culture and standardized beauty can be very confining and toxic. But at the same time, we also enjoy touch. We enjoy the ideas of striving and betterment. And there are so many things about beauty culture that are connective. Maybe bonding between mother and daughter. Maybe getting ready together with girlfriends for a night out. You have a background in psychology. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of the third, right? that we wrestle with dualities so that maybe a third comes out, a deeper understanding. I am a big supporter and student of Jungian psychology, and I have a Jungian analyst, for example. And so I do depth psychology with my therapist. And constantly, it's a study of dualities. And so I think beauty and beauty culture and beauty labor is such a paradox in so many different ways. And we have to wrestle with that paradox because I I did not write a polemic. I did not say drop it completely, though I think it's valid if you want to. I think it's actually an easier way to stake a position than having to wrestle with, okay, how much hair do I remove? I think everybody finds their own sweet spot, and everybody has to find their own sweet spot, but it really needs to be soul-centered, and everybody's soul, everybody's psyche and essence is different. And so I can't prescribe like one just in the same way I don't want to prescribe one beauty standard like, hey, everybody should have clear skin. I don't want to say like everybody should divest completely. I'm sorry. That's kind of a squishy position.
0: No, it's not. Actually, I think what's easy and what shows up in my practice now and what showed up in my practice when I worked exclusively as a therapist is binary, either or black or white, this or that. If I'm this, then I'm not that. And finding that middle, that gray comfort in not knowing even to be wrestling with that and interrogating that is painful for people, harder. And no, it's way harder. Right. Because you're just in the sticky, icky mess of it. But the rewards are so, so profound because you're really wrestling like, who am I? What do I want?
1: No. And as women, I think we don't afford ourselves that kind of self-reflection. Though I will say that it's so worthwhile to wrestle with yourself and your own interiority, because for me anyway, my sort of being more compassionate with myself and just understanding myself in a more rigorous way has made me more compassionate towards others, but also more effective in communicating and connecting. And ultimately, we're part of a giant web. And so I can't be the best friend and sister and mother and daughter that I can without knowing and being aware of my own foibles and my own difficulties and the places where I'm not showing up and the paradoxes and the confusions. So it is not self-indulgent to really seek out these answers and stay in the gray area and go through that discomfort.
0: And I have to say thank you for that way to capture your new life blend and designing a life with intention and what it means to be really... um, Okay, great. I guess I'm signing off. Mic drop.
1: (laughs) My My computer is running out of batteries. Okay, good. Well, that's
0: perfect. But I us say you really did just like that giant web. It is it. And like, what does it mean to really sit with ourselves and ask those questions and see how connected we are? So yes, thank you for that mic drop moment. And tell us where you want us to find you. We're going to link to your, you know, pre-order your book. Great. Yes. I'm sure there's
1: links in the show notes, but the easiest way to find me online is just at my website, which is my first name, last name dot com, Elise E-L-I-S-E-H-U dot com. And I hang out a lot on Twitter and Instagram at Elise W-H-O, pun intended. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Elise. Thank you. Neat. I
1: loved talking about this with you. And I wish we would have spent more time on Texas.
0: But there was a lot to get to. <laughs> we might have to. Maybe you'll come. We'll out. have to do come a out. reprise. Yeah, yeah. After the book well, comes out. You exactly. know Exactly. We'll sure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been your new Life Blend. I'm Shoshana Hecht reminding you, as always, be gentle with yourself.